Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. When history uh, records the impeachment saga of Donald Trump, certainly the name Adam Schiff will be front and center as the appointment for the House, chairman of the Intelligence Committee in leading the investigation of the president as the lead floor manager in the Senate for the trial of Donald Trump. Adam Schiff was the major voice in bringing the case against the president. There are so many issues surrounding that impeachment that linger and so many questions about where we go from now. So I sat down with Chairman Schiff on Capitol Hill yesterday to talk about the impeachment and trial and the president's disposition and actions since he was acquitted by the United States Senate. Chairman Schiff, it's great to be with you again. The last time we were together, you weren't Chairman Schiff. You were just a ranking member. Was it that long ago? It It seems like another lifetime. I want to actually, to our Axe Files listeners, I want to commend you to that conversation. I think it was episode number 140. I think this is like 368. Oh, my goodness. Uh, But we talked a lot about your your family's immigrant story and your rise as a prosecutor, which seems pretty germane now, and, and as a politician. And it was a great conversation, but we've got more contemporary things to talk about today. And before I get to your journey through this whole saga uh, of impeachment, I have to ask you about what's happening now. You gave stirring historic oratory on the floor of the Senate warning about what an unbridled president uh, would mean. But tell me how you've interpreted the events of the last few days, because the president, just to, I don't want to get you in trouble again by introducing mob parody parlance stuff, but uh, it looks like he's taking care of the family's business here and doing away with all the witnesses. It's just breathtaking and shocking uh, what the president is now engaged in. Um, The punishing of witnesses who testified against him, the um, the uh, removal of Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, the removal of his brother. There's not even any allegation of, uh, of uh, any kind of misconduct against either, but you know, particularly the brother. He's yeah. going out to punish family members of. Well, let me ask you now. about this for a second, because you know, I'm sure people out there say, well, even if Vindman did what his duty required, you can see why it would be uncomfortable for him to be in the White House. It was the sort of perp walk element of it that was really shocking. I mean, you know, he and his brother walked off the White House grounds as if they had done something wrong. Well, exactly. I mean, the whole point is to humiliate uh, and attack uh, anyone who would speak out against the president, anyone who would speak up to the president. Um, but to go after this uh, Purple Heart recipient, and it's not just the the removal of his position in the White House and that of his brother, but the demonization of him uh, by the president's allies in Congress, by people on Fox primetime, um, but going after other uh, witnesses as well. Um, rewarding people who lied to cover up the president's misdeeds. The, I just read the sentencing, revised sentencing memo in the Roger Stone case. As someone who lied before our committee, tried to intimidate other witnesses and uh, suborn uh, their either non-cooperation or perjury. And he's weighing in the Justice Department uh, under Bill Barr made a filing that looks like it was written by Roger Stone's defense lawyer. Uh, I've never seen such a thing at the uh, Justice Department. And uh, you look at the dangling of pardons now. Well, well, let's stop there. To our uh, listeners, you can't see, but 
Chairman Schiff must be wondering why I'm reaching for my, my cell phone here as we speak. But I just wanted to read to you a couple of the President's tweets just in the last few hours. Uh, congratulations to Attorney General Bill Barr for taking charge of a case that was totally out of control and perhaps should not have ever even been brought. Evidence now clearly shows that the Mueller scam was improperly brought and tainted. Even Bob Mueller lied to Congress, and there were, there were subsequent tweets like that. What does it say about the justice system now? And you know, you've been pretty optimistic that, about the self-correcting nature of our democracy. Is there a point beyond which even you are not uh, able to deliver that message with credibility? Well, that's a big question. Um, uh, when I look at tweets like that um, and consider that this intervention uh, in the work of the Department of Justice, this you know, direct attack on our rule of law uh, and on the post-Watergate reforms that tried to build a wall between the White House and the Justice Department, I'm struck by the fact that it's all out in the open. I mean, we will certainly learn about what's taking place behind the scenes, the, the sort of clandestine effort uh, to weigh in uh, and help the president's friends uh, and hurt the president's enemies. But the fact that this is being done in the open in a way makes it more insidious uh, because it is normalizing this attack on the independence of our justice system. Uh, we now have a president and an attorney general who's willing to go along with him that is in the business of investigating uh, political opponents, that is in the business of uh, providing lenient sentences for those that will commit crimes to cover up for the president uh, and try to get harsher sentences on people like Michael Cohen or others that will speak out against the president. Um, I've never witnessed uh, in my lifetime or my consciousness, I mean, we saw some elements of this, I guess, during Watergate, such a wholesale assault on the rule of law here. Um, and yes, it's hard when you see this going on in real time to be optimistic. Uh, I left the trial, frankly, optimistic seeing the courage that Mitt Romney displayed, uh, seeing yeah, the courage that, that, that yeah. people like Joe Manchin and Doug Jones displayed, um, you know, restored re, uh, my faith uh, that the founders' confidence that we were capable of self-government was well-placed. Where were you, by the way, when you heard Ro Romney's speech? Did you listen to his speech on I the did. floor? I, I did. I was in the Democratic cloakroom, and I had heard that he was going to be making an address at that time. Did not know what he was going to say. I did not know what he was going to say. And I did not imagine that he would um, be, will, be willing to do what he did. I mean, it really, how many among us would show that kind of courage? Uh, just extraordinary and clearly so heartfelt. Um, what did you personally feel when you were watching it? I mean, I have to say, I, I was... You know, to me, this was like a, one of those Mr. Smith goes to Washington moments. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, where you sort of, you know, y you remember, <laughs> you remember it as something that... Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, I, I was just, uh, uh, you know, I lost my breath. I mean, listening to him um, and that long pause before he talked about his faith and what drove him to this decision... Uh, it just could not have been more moving and inspiring. Um, during my closing argument a couple of days earlier, I had posed the question whether there would be a single yes, it was very powerful of the Senate who would be the David to this Goliath um, that would would change the course of history, and and he did exactly that, and I think he will change history. I hope um, that when we look back on this time, that may be the moment where the fever began to break, um, where people of good conscience found they could no longer go along with what this president was doing to tear apart our country and its institutions and its values. And so I found it incredibly inspiring. And, um, and that, that has left me optimistic. I remain optimistic. Um, but then you've seen what you've seen s since then. Since then, uh, yes, uh, it's been one horror after another. And what makes this, I think, so dangerous is in the midst of these continuing assaults, 
um, from these senators that expressed such indignation that uh, I would cite a news article uh, suggesting there would be retribution against people who stood up to the president, to see these senators now completely silent uh, in the face of these attacks on our institutions and our uh, the independence of justice in this country. That's the most concerning thing. Um, but, you know, I still, David, have the core belief we're going to get through this. We've been through worse. Uh, but as I said during the trial, what we do now will depend on how deep the damage is, how long it will take us to repair our system. And, you know, to my GOP colleagues, they, they need to wake up. Um, they need to wake up and uh, join the effort to save this country from the, the damage that he has wrought. As you know, there's a great deal of fear. And I mean, we've seen this in our history, too, where you talk about speeches that can change the course of history. Margaret Chase Smith from Maine stood up and, and challenged McCarthy, and it took a while. But no one else was really willing to do it because of fear that he would go after them. But you, you raise a couple of things that, that are interesting to me. You say, you know, he's doing these things in plain sight. That was sort of what happened here. I mean, he got caught, as you pointed out, the whistleblower, and you guys started a probe. But they offered as a defense during the trial, his, his attorneys, the fact that he made that transcript or partial transcript or summary or whatever it was available that was so much a core of your case and that he stood out in the public and talked about these things. There is a kind of audacity to it that if you just talk about your behavior publicly, that it then becomes acceptable, that it's not clandestine. There is certainly that uh, element to this president where he doubles down on everything. Uh, he's often very blatant about things. And, you know, I would say a couple of things about the, the call. The first is, uh, of course, uh, when you get beyond his attempts at revisionist history, he was forced effectively to release the call record. Because when we learned in Congress that the whistleblower complaint was being withheld from Congress in violation of the law, um, I told the director of national intelligence I was going to do a public hearing and call him in to explain to the country why he was the first director of national intelligence to refuse to provide a whistleblower complaint to Congress. Um, that had a forcing function. We were going to get that complaint. And the administration, the president, knowing we were going to get the complaint, um, felt they needed to release the call record, and they did. Um, Although they they had no problem withholding everything else. That's true. That's true. I think they felt that the whistleblower complaint out on its own without the call record was worse than it with the call record. Um, I don't know that that was the right calculation, but but essentially that was a forced disclosure by the administration. But the the more interesting question to me is, the one the president keeps coming back to and did in, uh, in just a statement yesterday uh, in one of his sort of rambling attack and, and expletive-laden public appearances when he said, why would I, if there was something wrong with this call, why would I make this call, have this conversation, right. That's his basically argument. do this extortion, knowing there were other people on the line? And, you know, I was a prosecutor for six years. Defendants do dumb things all the time. Uh, and you are always asking the question, why would they do that when it was so uh, foreseeable that they would be found out? But here I think there's additional explanation for Donald Trump, which is having survived the Mueller investigation, he felt, uh, and I think continues to feel, that he is the state, that he can do no wrong, that, um, that uh, if he says it, uh, you know, this is a variation of the Dershowitz defense, yeah. and it's in his interest, uh, re-election interest. It is, therefore, in the national interest. And, therefore, what was wrong with him trying to extort an ally? Uh, so I think that was why he was so brazen. You went to Harvard Law School. Was Dershowitz a professor there when you were uh, a student? He was. Uh, in fact, I audited uh, a class of his, um, but to be candid, grew bored and <laughs> stopped auditing the class. Wow, that will hurt him. <laughs> well. You could say almost anything else, but boring <laughs> would hurt him. Yeah, that argument really basically gives a, 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 a kind of get-out-of-jail-free card to any president to do whatever they want in service of their own self-interest. It, is. It, it does, and it was breathtaking. Um, even, uh, you know, the president's other lawyers ultimately had to walk away from the full 
lawlessness uh, aspect of that argument. Um, but that's essentially, I think, what the president believes. And the idea that whatever crime you commit, whatever wrongdoing you engage in, is somehow justified by your own estimate of self-worth, that your own reelection is somehow in the national interest or co-equal the national uh, interest, uh, there's no limiting principle there. Um, but, uh, you know, what we have seen since underscores just how much this president feels he has a free hand to do whatever he wants. So the question is, what can you do about it? The fact is that you guys impeached the president of the United States. He was acquitted. And I, I know that you've said, and you're right, you first of all exposed something that was going on at the moment, and you probably stopped the Ukrainians from executing on the president's request to announce a, an investigation of the Bidens. You know, you proved your case to the point where those or many of those or several of those who voted to uh, acquit the president acknowledged that he was guilty of the behavior that you alleged. But at the end of the day, he was acquitted. He had a victory celebration at the White House a day or two later. And now you see this behavior and there is this feeling that Congress is unable to do anything about it. I mean, and that seems to be his feeling uh, that you guys are toothless tigers now, and he's kind of proven that point. I don't think that's accurate, though. Um, we uh, did expose his wrongdoing. We did stop the plot. And we will continue to push back against his misconduct. But it is true, as long as the president um, enjoys the kind of cult of his personality in the Republican caucus, uh, as long as Republican members, with the exception of Mitt Romney, are unwilling to stand up to him no matter how um, corrupt his conduct may be, then yes, there are real limits on what we can do. But even within those limits, there are important things that we can do. Um, in the Intel Committee, we have a laser-like focus on foreign interference in our election. The president may not be willing to do anything about it. Um, the president may not be willing to call out the Russians uh, for their engagement on his behalf uh, in the next election as he welcomed their interference in the last. But we can. Uh, we can call them out on it. We can expose what the Russians are doing. We can expose what the president is doing. We can continue to fight back until um, either the country or the GOP or both wake up to the danger this president presents. Um, and so... Uh, there's a lot we can do, a lot we're going to have to do within the constraint of the fact that uh, while we're in the majority in one house, we're not the majority in the other, and the Republicans have completely abdicated their responsibility. Well, take the, uh, the things we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation here, his intervention in the Stone case, for example. It's hard to imagine that if another president had done what he just did, that there wouldn't be action on the part of the Congress, and there really isn't stirring. There are statements of disapprobation like the one you gave, but there isn't really any recourse that is obvious to this. And in there, and that, that does normalize behavior that we never would have normalized before. One of the um, shining lights through this dark period has been the independence of the judiciary. Uh, so even while the president has been able to undermine the independence of his own Justice Department and has had a willing accomplice in Bill Barr, an eager accomplice in Bill Barr, nonetheless, the courts have continued to act with independence. So we'll see what the judge has to say. He went after the judge as well. He went after the judge as well. It's not the first time he's gone after a judge. It won't be the last. This judge and any other has to know that if they make a ruling the president doesn't like, he's going to come after them. Any hope that they have of advancing from a district court to a court of appeals, of course, would be DOA for a judge during this administration if the judge acts with independence. But we have to count on them acting with independence, and we have to continue to expose um, the interference with the justice system by the president. So we're not powerless here. Um, there are checks, and those checks are still operating. They're operating um, with, with far less effectiveness than they should, but the system is still holding. It will hold uh, until the voters have a chance to remove this, this man from office. Um, but, uh, or yeah. not. Or not. Or not. And if, if not... 
then the country will be pretty unrecognizable uh, four years from now. In what way? Well, well tell me what you foresee. Uh, you know, I think they're one of two possibilities um, that uh, in the next four years, we become unrecognizable to ourselves and to the rest of the world. We become even more bitterly divided. Uh, the animosities only grow. Uh, the rest of the world uh, begins to um, look uh, down on the United States uh, as a country that has lost its way, lost its ideals, that doesn't represent the the beacon that it once did, and and uh, or worse. Um, there is also, you know, the very real possibility that this president just descends further uh, into uh, lawlessness and disorder, uh, and who knows where that leads. He has gone after you repeatedly, personally, and menacingly accusing you of, uh, of being a traitor, calling you corrupt and sick, uh, but the implication, and, and suggesting that there should be some penalty for your behavior for, as he says, putting the country through this. How's this affected you personally when you see this? I mean, do you feel threatened? Uh, you know, um, I have received threats uh, that I think he helps gin up through his attacks and, and those of his supporters. So, you know, that's just become a fact of my life uh, during the Trump era. But do your fa does your family worry about it? Uh, they do. They do. Um, it would be uh, natural if they didn't. But uh, at the same time, uh, I'm, you know, living proof you can stand up to this president. You can take angry tweets and taunts and whatnot, and you can still go on and do your job. Um, there are more members of Congress that need to stand up to this president and do their job uh, and not be so terrified of an errant tweet you can survive an errant tweet. You can survive insulting tweets. You can survive the the calumnies on Fox primetime, and you can still do your job. But not physical attacks. Well, I hope it doesn't come to that, certainly. Um, and, uh, you know, look, I, I think that this is a time when everyone has a role to play in public office and private life and corporate life and civic life. Um, to defend our democracy, to do what's necessary to defend our democracy. And I, the only thing I feel fortunate about in terms of my own position is that I'm in a position to make a difference right now, and I think the country really needs people to defend what America represents, the values it represents. And so the attacks on me, I look at as an opportunity to show others, you can survive this, I'm surviving this, I'm doing just fine. I'm going to continue to do my job. You can do yours. Uh, Mitt Romney, I hope, will show my GOP colleagues that there are um, more important things than doing the president's bidding. There are more important things than worrying about your reelection, looking your face uh, in, in the mirror, um, having something to tell your children and grandchildren. You know, I was particularly moved when, when Mitt Romney talked about what he'll tell his kids and grandkids mm -hmm. because I think about that all the time. Uh, you know, my kind of North Star has been, I want my kids to be proud of what their father did when he had a chance to serve. And, uh, and one day when we have grandkids, I hope they're proud of what I did when I had a chance to serve. I don't know what these GOP members are going to tell their kids and grandkids, because they will be asked, you know, please, grandfather, please, grandmother, tell me what you did to stand up to that horrible man when he was in office. Tell me you weren't silent. Uh, what are they going to say? I know what they would say to you. They would say you're from an impregnable district, so it is difficult to stand up to the belligerence of this president, but politically there is no risk for you in doing that. For them, they think it's an existential threat to their tenure here. No, I, that's absolutely right, and I, this is something I talked about on the Senate floor. It doesn't require political courage for me, not the kind that Mitt Romney showed or Joe Manchin or Doug Jones or others. So they need to show that rarest form of courage that Robert Kennedy talked about, moral courage. But, you know, they need to do it. Uh, if not, why are they even there? What, why did well, they want to serve? A, you know, uh, his brother, Robert Kennedy's brother, wrote a book called Profiles in Courage, and I always note that it was a pretty thin volume. You know, those acts of courage, we remember them because 
they are exceptional in our history and particularly in periods like this with such a muscular menacing force with as you say a cult of personality you for the longest time and the speaker with whom you're close resisted the notion of impeachment i was sort of with you on that i i got into a little colloquy with tom steyer early on because he began this campaign for impeachment very early in the administration that ended up being kind of a hindrance to you in making your case because what the president wanted to do was put it in a political context, talk about it as a kind of bloodless coup. Tell me what your fears were about impeachment. Well, and, and you're right. Uh, you know, during the trial, the president's defense team played clips of members talking about impeachment from the beginning of the Trump administration. They weren't able to make those attacks on me because they knew I had resisted impeachment. And I had resisted it for a long time uh, for for a number of reasons. The first is the investigation was still going on. The uh, Mueller investigation. The Mueller investigation was going on. Our own investigation, the Intel Committee, was going on. And it seemed, you know, premature among everything else to be talking about what the um, what the consequences ought to be before we finished our investigation. But I was also uh, concerned with. Um, with two things, and, and uh, I think we may have talked about this before, that the strongest argument for impeachment was also the strongest argument against it, which is right. if, if you don't impeach the president, what does that say about his conduct being compatible with office? But if you do impeach him and he's acquitted, what does that say about whether his conduct is compatible with office? What made me convinced that the latter scenario was the lesser fear uh, was the fact that the day after Bob Mueller testified, uh, and he felt vindicated, was the day he got on the phone with President Zelensky of Ukraine and tried to engage in the next scheme to get foreign interference uh, in the next U.S. election. Which was in, already underway. Which was already underway. Um, but you had this seminal moment where he made it overt uh, in a direct head of state to head of state call uh, that he wanted Ukraine to interfere in the U.S. election. And... Uh, and it was clear at that point that he was going to withhold the White House meeting, uh, and soon would become clear uh, to the Ukrainians that he was also going to withhold their military support, uh, even though they were at war, until he got his illicit mm -hmm. uh, foreign help. So to me, that he would engage in this conduct um, while Bob Mueller's words were still hanging in the air, said that the risk of not doing anything is now the more profound risk. He already feels unbound. Uh, and and so we went forward. The, the discovery of this most you know uh, serious misconduct uh, and the fact that he was engaging in it the day after Bob Mueller testified was was I think too much uh, to uh, risk uh, further inaction. Yeah, but the th there, there's a third argument in addition to the ones you raise for and against. This one is against, uh, which is that the greatest, uh, perhaps the greatest critique of the president. I mean, I come from the school that says the other guy gets elected, the other party gets elected, they get to lead on policy. And you may disagree with that policy, but you can't remove them from office because you disagree on the policy. But the sundering of democratic institutions uh, and the flouting of laws is a different matter. But impeachment itself is a tricky tool. It's an, that's a norm you don't want to establish either, which is impeachment as a political tool. And you knew, and we've seen, that a significant portion of the country may not be a majority because a majority thought that the president should be removed, a bare majority, but a majority. But his core supporters, and you know they're fairly numerous, they thought of it as a bloodless coup, as a political exercise. And a lot of Americans sort of thought the whole thing was noise in, in Washington. And did you have a fear that by essentially using what is a nuclear weapon, that it would be a weapon that will be used more more readily in the future, that it will become another norm that yeah. was shattered? You know, I, I don't have that fear. Uh, I do think that the Clinton impeachment was an abuse of the impeachment power um, that was used uh, to go after President Clinton for lying about sex, uh, something that had nothing to do with the execution of his duties. I agree with that, mm. but, uh, you know, there was the issue. They did go after him for lying. There was an issue of appropriateness of dealing with staff and 
in the White House and how he behaved. But be that as it may. By the way, you beat your opponent in California. Wasn't he a leader on the Clinton impeachment? Was was that one of the arguments that you made against you him? Know, interesting, it was not. Uh, I mean, he was an impeachment manager in the Clinton impeachment, but we did not campaign, neither he nor I, on impeachment. Um, we campaigned on issues that were very local to our district. But my point is, I do think there, there have been abuses. There at least has been one abuse of the impeachment power with respect to Bill Clinton. But here, where you had a president who was using the power of his office to coerce an ally into helping him cheat in an election, the remedy can't be the election that he's trying to cheat in. Uh, and so I think both because this was an action that damaged our national security, uh, undermined an ally at war, and threatened the integrity of the next election, the remedy was appropriate. And I don't think it will be a model for abuse because I think it was properly applied. You've talked about Watergate and how that played out differently. And we had heroes of both parties who stood up in significant number to to essentially force a resignation of the president. Do you think that would have happened if there were Fox News and social media and the kind of tools that a president has, say Twitter, uh, to rally his forces? Because it was striking that even as you made this very coherent case, and even as 51% of Americans or so said the president should be convicted and removed from office, his approval rating stayed where it was, maybe even strengthened a little, in part because people were listening to different accounts of what was going on. You know, I, I have said for quite a while now that the difference between Watergate and today wasn't the discovery of tapes uh, during Watergate. We really, with a call record, have our own modern equivalent of tapes, but rather the presence of Fox and the absence of Fox during Watergate. Fox allows the president's supporters to live in an alternate reality. The presence of social media helps reinforce that. This may be the most cross-cutting challenge of all for the country. That is, we get our information now from such different sources. Yeah, we live in virtual reality silos. We do, we do. And, and now that most people get their news from social media, it's curated now to a far greater degree um, based on what we like and don't like, share and don't share. Um, we are more balkanized than ever. Um, so uh, that... I think has resulted in an uh, incredible polarization of the public as well as the political parties. And it's difficult to prescribe an answer to that, uh, given the First Amendment. And uh, I don't know what the answer is to that, uh, except that we're going to have to be much more skeptical consumers of information, uh, and we're going to have to develop a, an affinity for trusted sources of information. But, but this is enormously difficult, and he has used his Fox platform as a cudgel uh, it really, you know, particularly in prime time, but through much of the day as well, is like uh, not state-run TV, but oligarch-run TV. And you see so many trends in the United States now that we have seen in other countries. Uh, that yeah, there's, have, this, this, there's this chilling book, How Democracies Die. You've probably seen it. And so many of the symptoms of a democracy under stress are very visible now. And the, the, the thing about it is that the authors suggested that the thing that reigns these kinds of things in in a healthy democracy is members of the leader's own party standing up and disciplining that leader. And there's very little evidence of that Mitt Romney being an admirable aberration. You know? There's been tragically little uh, evidence of that until until Mitt Romney. And but there is a there is an antidote, um, and that is the 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 number of Americans who feel the way the president does are still a minority um, of this country. And if the majority uh, are registered to vote and turn out, uh, we could put an end to this uh, dark chapter, and we can begin the repudiation of what this president stands for and stood for. Uh, we can begin the healing. We can begin putting the country back together again uh, in terms of mending the divisions that he has only helped to deepen. Let me so, take a little detour here. You need a candidate, of course, to do that. You've not taken a position on the race? I haven't. Uh, you know, uh, certainly up until this point, uh, given that Joe Biden was a figure in the trial, I felt it wise for me to stay completely neutral, and I may remain neutral. I haven't made any commitments. Got to vote on March the 3rd, you know. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. <laughs> <The> California <laughs> primary. You know, it was interesting. I saw some focus groups uh, in Iowa 
while the trial was going on. And people were concerned, voters were concerned, not that they thought that Biden had done anything wrong, but they were concerned about the Benghazi effect, the email effect that the Trump machine would weaponize this, true or not, uh, and particularly the Hunter Biden issue to create doubts about uh, Biden, and that would make him a less formidable candidate. In that sense, do you think, and, and of course, he didn't perform well in Iowa, and he didn't perform well last night in New Hampshire. In that sense, do you think that they uh, partly achieved their purpose? Well, I think that what matters most is not the negative attack, but how the candidate responds to the negative attack. And, and so I think to whatever degree this has impacted the Biden campaign, um, it's a question for the candidate. How do you respond? Uh, how do you turn what would be a negative into a positive? Um, the fact that this president is so deeply unpopular in the Democratic Party is singling out uh, one of the candidates more than another can be a real positive. Yeah. Do you think primary. he did not do that effectively enough? Uh, you know, I'm not the best. You're, you're uh, not. You're, well, come on. You're a, you're, a, you're a damn good politician. You're more than a prosecutor here. You're, you're a practicing politician. I think there are effective ways for... Uh, the vice president to uh, go on the attack uh, over Trump's attacks of him and his son. Um, That can be very effective. Do you think it was fair game to suggest that he should have maybe told Hunter Biden, you know what, that's not a good idea. Don't go on that board. You know, look, I think that whenever you have an elected official's um, family member in a position of responsibility, there is at a minimum an appearance of a conflict uh, that should be avoided, mm-hmm. and but that pales uh, yeah, no, uh, I, I, before any of the, the the president's actions. And what's more, and, and you know, you got to give the Trump people credit for audacity. The fact that this argument would even be made by a Trump yes. just takes I, your breath right. away. The the, the 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 monumental hypocrisy. And, you know, that... Yeah, well, the kids themselves carried the argument, which made it even more absurd. Yes, and, you know, that may have been the opportunity for Joe Biden to go on the attack. It's harder, though, if you don't acknowledge something, like maybe that wasn't a good idea in in retrospect, because Hunter Biden actually uh, acknowledged that. Let me ask you... You know, know, one other thing, David, though. I think one thing that strikes a really responsive chord in people is when you point out the abject hypocrisy in your opponent. And this president who campaigned on draining the swamp, who's now had more of his close aides, associates, national security advisor, go to jail or be threatened with jail, um, whose family members uh, have conflicts uh, every which way, who enriches himself at taxpayer expense through his resorts, um, you know, Going after him for the just abject hypocrisy uh, can be powerful. And, and I, I also think that the most successful campaigns are those where the positive and the negative are opposite sides of the same coin. And making the case, too, uh, the reason why we've had income disparity go through the roof, the reason why, yes, there's low empo- unemployment, but people aren't making enough to get by, is because this corrupt president doesn't give a rat's behind about you. We're going to take a short break. Stay tuned for more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. In retrospect, there were a few things that you were criticized for. One was your introductory statement at the hearings, at the uh, Intelligence Committee hearings, in which you did, you sort of did a parody of what the conversation was between the president and Zelensky. Would you do that over again? Would you use that language? It became sort of a target for him and others, you know. Uh, it was obviously parody, but they used it against you. Was it worth the trouble? <laughs> Uh, you know, knowing how much uh, mocking him has bothered him, it was probably worth it. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I'm kind of marvel that he's so fixated on this um, because I was so plainly mocking him. Uh, but look, if it wasn't that, they would be going after something else. So I'm kind of glad that that's the best they've got. And, and even in his uh, upset 
over my mocking him. He misrepresents it. And there you have, you know, his hypocrisy once again. Uh, he was just uh, on TV yesterday saying that there I was mocking him, making up this phone conversation, supposedly, and then he released the transcript, which, of course, was a fabrication of the entire chronology. Mm -hmm. But uh, anyway, um, I have no regrets. I'm very proud of my own effort, but also of, of the House managers who I think put together uh, a just remarkable case. The speed of it has another been another question. You've and I want to rehash what you've said everywhere else, which you know, which is that you didn't want to get mired in a long uh, morass of dilatory tactics that would take you past the election that you were worried he was going to try and 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 tamper with in ways like the Ukraine episode. But there there also were political considerations, were there not? You know, you talk about the courage of the members of the Senate who cast the vote they cast, but you have a bunch of colleagues from districts that Donald Trump carried, and it wasn't necessarily an easy vote for them to vote for impeachment. I, I'm sure that knowing, as you did and the Speaker did, that how this was going to end, and I want to ask you about that in a second, the idea of this hanging over the campaign probably wasn't a very appetizing thought f uh, for, for you and for those members who don't want their whole reelection to be about impeachment. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the remarkable thing about our members is that when the speaker says there, were no, there was no whipping on impeachment, she is absolutely right. None of us whipped anyone on impeachment. Uh, and indeed, um, some of the members who are in the most vulnerable districts, including a number of our veterans, um, were pivotal in moving the caucus. Yeah, absolutely. In this the seven who wrote the op-ed piece in the Washington Post. Uh, absolutely, and you know they felt a real sense of duty, um, and they also, you know, having been several of them in in combat, they know what kind of courage that takes, and they thought that comparatively this was fairly easy uh, to other things they had done in their life. They had that per life perspective. But it still wouldn't, wouldn't be good for them if this whole year was consumed by impeachment. No, it wouldn't. And that's why we've kept our legislative agenda first and foremost and kept such a focus on health care and decent paying jobs. But, you know, I will say this also. We felt that because, you know, as you point out, the threat was to the next election, we couldn't let this go on indefinitely. And for those that would say, uh, as the White House tried to do during the Senate trial, and I think singly unpersuasive way, you should have fought harder to overcome our obstructionism. I mean, it really is quite a remarkable argument to make. We were obstructing you, mm -hmm. but it was your obligation to fight harder to overcome our obstruction. And so therefore, we won't, we're not going to let you call witnesses now. Exactly. Um, the reality is, had we gone through the year or likely two years to get testimony from the Boltons and the McGanns and the others, we would have gotten the same reaction anyway. We proved our case, and as you pointed out earlier, even senators who voted to acquit said it's not because the House didn't prove their case. No, actually so, what they said was they've proved, proven it so well, we don't need to hear any witnesses. Yes. Well, so if you go down the line a year or a year and a half from now, the argument would have been, well, the voters had this already, we already had the election, um, and therefore we don't need to consider this. The argument would have been, well, we, we knew these facts anyway. We knew what John Bolton was going to say anyway. And we're not going to stand up to this president no matter what. So it's not as if the result would have been different, except for the fact that I think we put the country on notice that this president was trying to interfere in the election and that we all needed to be on watch for what this president has mm -hmm. done and will do in the future. Uh, and I think that was enormously important. That was not a presidential misconduct uh, alarm, by the way. We're at the House, and those are signals to members about votes and and so on. But um, It may have also been a presidential alarm. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> you never know. Well, what about John Bolton? Uh, he refused to appear before your committee. You, you never did formally subpoena him. Uh, you subpoenaed a colleague of his who was represented by the same lawyer and deduced or were told that he would react in the same way and fight the subpoena. Then he offered to testify before the Senate. Do you think that was a sincere offer on his part? 
Well, and you have the chronology right. We uh, subpoenaed his deputy, um, yes. his uh, deputy national security advisor, uh, Dr. Kupperman, who sued us. Uh, and when we approached the same lawyer um, after having invited Bolton to testify voluntarily and Bolton refused, um, many witnesses were willing to come in, but only if they got a subpoena. Uh, Bolton's attorney said, uh, no, if you serve uh, Bolton, we will sue you, just like we sued uh, mm-hmm. with Kupperman. And, you know, we went back to them because the McGahn case, which involved the same issue. Tom McGahn, the White House counsel from the Mueller probe. Uh, exactly. Um, he had been subpoenaed. We were suing to enforce his subpoena in court. The district court was about to make a ruling. Uh, and we said, if this is really in good faith, if you really just want to get a court ruling that says you're able to come in, there is no absolute immunity. Let's just agree to be bound with what the McGann court says. Uh, they, they refused. Uh, and it became very clear that this wasn't a good faith effort to get a court decision. It was a delay tactic. Uh, now, something changed between then and the Senate trial. I presume that had everything to do with John Bolton's book. Your feeling was that he had to make some sort of offer to testify Otherwise, when the book came out, people would say, why didn't you disclose all of this? Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, we were making that argument while he was refusing to testify. But I think that it became quite apparent that uh, there would be a furor if he saved it for the book um, when the president was being impeached uh, and he was a central witness. Do you think he suspected that the Senate would not allow him to testify? I think it was probably unclear to him as it was unclear to us. Um, I think he probably anticipated that uh, the White House would uh, make an effort to resist, but none of us could predict how that vote was going to turn out. Uh, So we did, after the Senate voted down hearing from any witnesses or seeing any documents after the senators voted to become the first impeachment uh, trial in history with no witnesses, we did go back to Bolton's lawyer and say, well, will you submit a written affidavit? Uh, about these events that you're going to be disclosing in a book in a couple months? And their answer was no. So you can ask what kind of good faith that is. If he's willing to testify only one venue but not another, he's willing to put in a book but not in an affidavit under oath, he has a lot of explaining to do. Uh, But um, at the end of the day, it was quite clear that the senators not only didn't want to hear from him because they already understood the president's guilt, but more than that, didn't want the country to hear from them, because then it would be harder to justify their vote to acquit. Rudy Giuliani also didn't testify in either the House or the Senate, but apparently he's a font of information to the Department of Justice. The Attorney General announced the other day that he set up a system to intake all of this investigative material that Giuliani has accumulated in Ukraine even as the Justice Department apparently is, is investigating Giuliani for related or not activities, but he's under investigation. What, what did you make of that? Well, you know, sometimes you, you just have to step back to see how outrageous something is. Um, what this represents is the president's personal lawyer has a private channel to the attorney general and the Justice Department to feed negative information against the president's political opponent. That is just extraordinary uh, and dangerous and a further attack on the rule of law. And the, and the fact that members of Congress, GOP members of Congress, just shrug and look the other way uh, or write this off to Trump being Trump is unforgivable. You now can't get any further away from this effort we had to divide the White House from the Justice Department than where we are today. One of the things that uh, emerged after your hearings was the role of uh, your Republican colleague, Devin Nunes, in this Ukraine episode, and he apparently had contacts with some of the players and so on. This is, I guess, before the Ethics Committee. Is that is that right? I don't know the answer to that. Um, but I, I, I can't tell you, and this really struck me at the time, we were doing a deposition of Bill Taylor, uh, the former ambassador to Ukraine, and then the charge. And It seemed apropos of nothing. Um, The ranking member said, well, you know, we've been doing this investigation of Ukraine, Um, Ukraine's interference in the last election, something along those lines. And it struck, I think, all of us, I I can't speak for my Republican colleagues, that, okay, this is new. 
since when, how, using what resources. Um, this is nothing the committee has authorized or even been aware of. And then it would become clear, um, at least uh, clearer, that he had been in, engaged in some kind of effort along a parallel line to what Rudy Giuliani was apparently doing. And, and of course... Did you ask? Did I ask him? Mm-hmm. I haven't asked him. I don't know what kind of an answer I would get from him, frankly. But the fact that at a time when he had been chairman of the committee doing an investigation into Russia's interference in our election and then became the ranking member of the committee, he was actually engaged in a parallel investigation um, to further this Russian propaganda theory. As the chair and ranking member of the Intel Committee, he was doing this. Uh, I mean, it's quite staggering. Lindsey Graham has said he is going to pursue the Biden-Ukraine issue such as it is. Do you anticipate if Biden is no longer a candidate that they'll follow through on that, or will this go away? It will go away. Uh, You know, for the same reason that during the first two years of the Trump administration, Donald Trump had no problem with corruption in Ukraine, had no problem giving them military support. It was only when Joe Biden emerged as a candidate and was beating him in the polls that he suddenly had an interest in a energy company in Ukraine uh, called Burisma. Um, the president's interest and therefore his allies in Congress, their interest in Hunter Biden will evaporate the moment they don't believe that Joe Biden is their threat. Have you had any interactions with Republican senators through this process? I, there was a photo of you and Graham in a quarter where he apparently told you that you made a good argument, uh, lawyer to lawyer. Have you spoken to any of the Republican senators? You know, I have. And, you know, uh, he wasn't the only one to have that interaction with me. I, I actually wish it hadn't been caught on camera or there hadn't been a reporter nearby because I, th- I think it, it has a chilling effect on other people willing to speak even privately. Mm-hmm. But uh, what, what I found fascinating during the trial is much as you know, some people have commented about senators getting up and walking or, you know, drinking milk or whatever, they were really paying attention um, and if I were sitting there for day after day, I would be standing and walking just to get blood circulating <laughs> too. So I don't, I don't, uh, you know, begrudge them getting up to stretch. Um, I was instead very impressed with how senators on both sides of the aisle really paid close attention um, during the trial. And when I was making arguments about how unethical, indecent, untruthful this president is, uh, how he doesn't know the difference between right and wrong, there wasn't a single Republican senator shaking their head in disagreement. Um, They know what this man is. They know what he represents. There's really no question about that. And they don't have the courage to do what Mitt Romney did, but they know what we're dealing with. And that, to me, was very striking. Do you have any sympathy for the argument that we've never removed a president by, via impeachment? Richard Nixon resigned. We do have an election, and people should be allowed to decide. Do you, do you see any virtue in that argument? I, I think that, you know, depending on the circumstances of the president's misconduct, um, that argument either has force or doesn't have force. Uh, where the president is trying to cheat in the election, the election's not a, a remedy. Where, where you're convinced that the president um, is a habitual offender, will never course correct, will never learn uh, from their misconduct, um, that is, uh, you know, I think the paramount case for impeachment. It's, I think, a, a sign that this power is not overused or abused the fact that there have been only three impeachments in mm-hmm. history and and no president has yet been removed. But the founders put that remedy in for a reason. And, and they the, put it in the in the Constitution not just to be used in the House, but also as a tool to remove a president where it's warranted. Here it was warranted. The senators will ultimately have to answer those that were found him guilty but nonetheless voted to acquit. But I don't think the founders intended for this not to be utilized when it was necessary. And of course, there were no term limits at the time. So every president was up for re-election. Yeah. Every president. Right, right. Uh, oh, right. Uh, you're, good point. That's a good point. The constitutional limitation didn't come for 150 years later or something. Right. Realistically, I'm not sure what he assumes, the president, is you guys can't go back here. That it, You had one shot. This was the shot. You can't go back there. Um, is he not wrong about that? I mean, is impeachment sort of dead as a tool here? 
Well, um, I guess it depends on just how bad the president's future misconduct is. You know, we are going to make the case for his removal uh, at the ballot box, and I think that case is an incredibly powerful one. We just have to have the right nominee to carry that uh, message as well as the positive agenda. Um, but we cannot foretell what this president is capable, what further descent into madness this president is If he gets reelected, makes, it's harder, isn't it? Because he'll argue that... Everybody knew my behavior. I was re- I was affirmed. Well, it, it uh, you know, I, David. Honestly, I think it completely depends on his future misconduct mm-hmm. because that misconduct may reach a level where even the Republicans have to say enough. Are you going to write a book about this experience? Uh, I don't know, um, and you know, certainly people have been asking that, uh, but I don't know. Have you pre-ordered Bolton's book? Are you on Amazon? <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to give him the royalties. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Uh, just as we close, how has this experience changed you? You will forever be remembered for what you did here. And it will be many, many decades from now when your obituary is written. It will be the first line in your obituary. How has it changed you? I don't know if I want this to be a first line in my obituary. It's too late. I'm sorry. I had to be the one to bring bring this to your attention. The silver lining is, uh, years ago, I bet Steve Israel over the Mets-Dodgers World Series, and the loser had to go to the House floor and do a one-minute speech about how great the winning team was. I decided when the Dodgers lost that it would be funny instead to go to the House floor and do the most pathetic rendition of Meet the Mets I could possibly do, which I was very successful with. It uh-huh. was truly pathetic and, and intent, intended to be so. Of course, it went completely viral. Uh, and I was then worried that, uh, that the first line of my obituary was the guy who sang Meet the Mets so So this horribly. whole impeachment thing was just a, a means of getting that expunged from the first paragraph of your obituary. Uh, but but more, more seriously, yeah. this was a profound experience. And in terms of the weightiness of what you were dealing with, standing in the well of the Senate, giving these extraordinary uh, speeches. By the way, how do you speak for two and a half hours? How much preparation does that take? Well, not nearly as much as I would have liked uh, because we were often preparing for the next morning, the night before. Um, But I, I did one thing that served me well during the House impeachment hearings, which is I would take notes during the course of the day. And at the end, when I had an opportunity to make closing remarks and that would present itself, I would weave the themes that I had written down into whatever closing uh, argument I would make. And I think it was much more powerful than something that was pre-planned and mm-hmm. pre-written. Did it you tr- do that here as well? I, I mean- did. I mm-hmm. did. Uh, and, you know, some uh, of our presentations were scripted and some were spontaneous and some were a hybrid of the two, uh, where we would have something pre-planned and we would make changes. But, uh, you know, in terms of the bigger question you ask, uh, more serious question you asked, you know, I, I had a reputation before Donald Trump of being one of the least partisan members of Congress, of being a very nonpartisan member of Congress. I gravitated to the Intel Committee because it was so nonpartisan. Um, but I felt very early on that this president was a threat to our democratic way of life, and I am more convinced of that now than I have ever been just with the events of the last week. Um, and I was not content to sit still and do not nothing about it. And And so... You know, I feel I've had an important role to play in trying to keep the guardrails of our democracy intact. But it came at the expense of your image of someone who works well across party lines, who's not a particularly partisan figure. It did. I mean, you know, in these polarized times, anyone who does anything notable is going to be um, vilified or made a hero, um, and most often at the same time. But Uh, You know, in answer to your question, um, I think back about when I had that first race um, against that House manager. There was somebody from the Clinton trial. From the Clinton trial, I remember there was someone that I had reached out to as a state senator who never returned my calls, uh, but he called me up and wanted to get together and find out how he could help me in my uh, campaign. And uh, he said, I've never gotten involved in a campaign for a negative reason before, but I despise your opponent and I would like to help you. 
And I remember saying to him, I hope when you get to know me better, you find you have a positive <laughs> reason as well, but I will take what I can get. Uh, I would like my, the first line of my obituary to be something more positive than an impeachment. Um, but if it's he stood up to a deeply immoral and dangerous president, uh, there are worse obituaries to have. Well, as I said, uh, God willing, we won't know the answer to that for a long time. Thank so, you. So, uh, Chairman Schiff, thank you. It's always good to sit down with you. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.